So I promise that this cold opening segment won't always be the arguing with Alice Allen portion of the podcast, but this week, I, I feel like I have to respond to, in, in a recent episode of Poetry Says, Alice's very good poetry podcast, Go check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes as always. In a recent episode, she devoted a pretty long stretch to a discussion of poetry readings. And in particular, she responded to a few things that I said on Slee Ricketts. So I'm actually going to be getting Alice on the show in a week or so. We're going to be discussing uh, Patterson, not the William Carlos Williams epic poem, but the 2016 Jim Jarmusch feature film, Patterson, which is about poetry. It's a good movie, worth seeing. We're going to be discussing that in a week or so. Uh, and I'm hoping that I can get her, to, we, we can get into a few other things, maybe bicker about some of the some of the things that we've both talked about in the past. But for now, there's just one uh, one little, little note of hers that I, I felt like I should say something about in the meantime. So she quoted on her show, she quoted Ocean Vuong, a highly celebrated poet I've spoken about a little bit before. So she quoted Ocean Vuong as saying, memorize your shit. And this was specifically in the context of a, a discussion of poetry reading. So Vuong was saying, when you give a poetry reading, you should know your own poems by heart. And I basically agree. I think that's pretty good advice. I would just say that I, I think it's inadequate advice. I'm I'm guessing... So if you're Ocean Wong, I would wager that at this point in your career, the majority of the readings you give take place in a big dark room filled with people uh, with a spotlight on you, a stage that you're standing on, a microphone you're standing in front of, and basically a lot, lot, lot of people, a whole shit ton of people out there in the crowd whom you cannot see and who cannot see each other. So that you're performing in a sea of darkness to uh, a crowd of uh, adoring anonymous shades. And in that setting, I would say memorize your shit is is just unequivocally good advice. However, there, there is a distinction. It, it's a distinction Alice refers to in her, in her, uh, in, in this episode of the poetry says, she refers to it as the in New York versus not in New York split in poetry readings. And, and she sort of dismisses it as being insignificant. I think on that point, I, I pretty strongly disagree with her. I think it's extremely significant. <laughs> and just specifically, I, I think outside of New York, the colossal majority of poetry readings take place not in big dark rooms with spotlights and stages and microphones. They, they, they sometimes take place with microphone. It, you know, there, there's sometimes there's a microphone involved, often a, a poorly functioning one. But, but almost all of the poetry readings that I've been to have taken place in small, well-lit rooms with 
maybe a microphone, maybe a podium, but you know, very often you're, you're, you're standing on the same level. And usually you're standing on the same level as the audience. If you're lucky, they're sitting in chairs. Often they're not. There are not very many of them. It tends to be a small room, small crowd. And you're sometimes, you know, within almost an arm's length of the people listening to you. So in that setting, I think memorize your shit is still good advice. I just think it's it's not sufficient. And what I thought of in particular when I heard this this advice of Ocean Vuong's was I, I thought of this poet that I knew back in Baltimore. And um, I'm not going to name him because he's a, a good poet and more importantly, a, a lovely, lovely man. But he gave a lot of poetry readings. And he, he, as I said, he's on the page, very good poet. But he was very proud of always scrupulously memorizing his shit. He was a memorize your shit evangelist. And he absolutely practiced what he preached. So he always, always had his shit memorized. And almost as if to drive this point home, to make sure there was no ambiguity about this point, to make sure that nobody perhaps mistook him for somebody who had not memorized his shit. He would deliver his poems, not read them. He would recite his poems from memory with both hands joined behind his back. He'd be bent forward slightly at the waist and with... Uh, big round eyes, he would gaze out into the, again, usually very small and very nearby crowd of well-lit human beings. And in his resonant middle baritone voice, he would intone his poems while, <laughs> while in turn, well, turn by turn, person by person, making just full eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball contact with everybody in the room. Now, this was, rather than being inspiring or even impressive, this was inexpressibly unnerving. This was just deeply rattling. It was so, so disconcerting to have him leaning forward, staring into your soul, and declaiming his poems to you by heart. And, and that's why I say that memorize your shit is not quite enough. So there's another wrinkle here, and that is that you know, I, I write uh, my poems mostly in meter and rhyme. And I know a lot of poets who write mostly in meter and rhyme. And so my own experience and the experience of most of the poets I know who write mostly in meter and rhyme is that one of the consequences of hammering out verses with these kind of formal constraints is that you memorize it automatically as just a byproduct of composing it. It, it takes so long to compose and it's so thorny and rhyme and meter are such strong aids to memory 
that by the time you sort of finished a poem, and then especially once you've gotten it into respectable shape and into the shape, into the kind of shape that you would want it to be in, you know, before you presented it to anyone, by the time you get it there, you've gone through it so many times. You've hammered at it and tinkered with it and fiddled with it so often and so much that you, you just know it already. So the challenge for formal poets, and again, formal is just one of these uh, infelicitous but um, unavoidably convenient tags. So for formal poets, the challenge is not getting your shit memorized. The challenge is determining how to present it once you have. And I'll just tell you my own trick which is that I, when I, when I give a reading, I, I decide what I'm going to read. I print it out, even if it's in a book. I, I don't. I print it out anyways. Flipping through a book in the middle of a reading is too much trouble. Print it all out, page by page. Figure out what I'm going to read. Figure out what order. Get it all lined up on the page. I have it memorized. I, I, I make sure I have it memorized ahead of time. And then when it comes time to read, I stand up there, I hold the papers, and I pretend I don't have it memorized. I refer to the papers, even though I know it by heart. And, you know, I would say that the advantage still is that I'm, I don't get lost because I know it by heart. I'm a little more confident, a little more fluent in delivering it because I, I don't actually have to refer to the paper. I can look down at the paper a lot less often. But I still do look down so as to avoid the excesses of the bend at the waist, wide-eyed intoner that I, for for whom I felt so much affection and and angst back in Baltimore. And I don't know that this is even still really good advice. I just find that it's it's the compromise I've settled on for the moment. And so you know, I think once again. If you have listened to any of uh, Alice's podcast, and if you've listened to any of mine, I, th I think what, what what this comes down to is that Alice's advice, as usual, is earnest, open-hearted, and inclusive. While my advice is petty, misanthropic, <laughs> and self-defeating. I... I'm so excited to get her on the show. I, I cannot tell you, Alice, we're going to make such a great team. Just you fucking wait. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you are listening to Slee Ricketts. This is, the levels here may be a little funny to, uh, this week because I, I realized just as I was about to release the episode that I had neglected to record uh, an introduction telling you uh, who the fuck I am and what you're listening to. So as I said, this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you as always for listening. Thank you especially to those of you who have had a chance to give the show a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever. Uh, uh, subscribe uh, or just recommend the show to a, a friend if, if you haven't already. 
I do appreciate it. And now I will get to the probably very different sounding recording that I've been <laughs> piecing together. This one's long and shaggy, but I think uh, kind of fun. A little bit of a throwback in terms of the, the meandering and uh, probably a few more pauses and ums because I'm editing this real last minute, but with any luck, you will enjoy. So I went to the bookstore the other day for the first time. Oh God, I mean, since well before the the pandemic. Uh, I, I, you know, I hadn't been in person at least. It was nice, it was nice to go and I went in to, to get the new Colson Whitehead book. Always, uh, oh, oh, you know, you, you can always count on Colson Whitehead to deliver a, a good read, a good time. I'm looking forward to this one. It's a heist book. Colson Whitehead heist book. Sounds pretty fucking fun. Anyway, while I was in there, I saw a title. I, I, I skimmed the, the poetry section, I always do. And I saw a title and uh, pulled it out. And I, I, I bought on a whim uh, the new collection from Michael Robbins. Now, now Michael Robbins, <laughs> I've mentioned on the podcast before, uh, he is a, a hyper self-conscious hipster poet and critic based in Chicago who... Uh, he he came to notoriety when in 2009 Paul Muldoon plucked a poem of his from the New Yorker slush pile and published it in the magazine. Uh, this was a poem called Alien versus Predator, and it got a lot of attention because it the the style was um, was flashy. It you know to to my eye and ear it actually reads a lot like a a young man's version of an old man Paul Muldoon poem that is the the sort of the late later part of the career uh, of Paul Muldoon uh, it, it was sort of if anything you know more obsessed with pop culture and and more more manic but otherwise you know uh, a not uh, not a distant cousin to the late career Paul Muldoon poem. So Alien versus Predator, uh, it rather than trying to describe it in any more detail, I'll just read it because it's a relatively short poem. I'm going to read it quickly and I'm not going to bother to try to talk a lot about it because I think it will, I think it introduces itself uh, uh, pretty frankly for what it is i think it, i think it's pretty candid about what it's getting at this is alien versus predator by michael robbins it was originally ran in the new yorker i'm just going to blow through it all right alien versus predator praise this world rilke says the jerk we'd stay up all night every angel's berserk hell if you slit monkeys for a living you'd pray to me too i'm not so forgiving i'm rubber you're glue that elk is such a dick He's a space tree making a ski and a little foam chiropractor. I set the controls. I pioneer the seating of the ionosphere. I translate the Bible into Velociraptor. In front of the Best Buy, the Tibetans are released. But where's the whale on? But where's the whale on stilts that we were promised? I fight the comets, lick the moon, pave its lonely streets. The sandhill cranes make brains look easy. I got by many names. I go by many names, Buju Banton, Camel Light, The New York Times. Point being, rickshaws in Scranton. I have few legs. I sleep on meat. I'd eat your bra. Point being, in a heartbeat. Whew. So, <laughs> uh, I think one of the reasons that, that uh, 
this poem and, and Robin's other poems, which were much like this, got uh, attention, I think, is also because he, as, as you know, Muldoon is, has always liked to do, he rhymes a lot. And, and especially when he was writing this, uh, a, a serious person on the page poetry didn't rhyme a whole lot. And, and uh, Robin's, unlike your typical hipster poet throwing in some rhymes, actually has some sense of prosody. It's, it's, not, it's not pure doggerel. Uh, though he becomes more and more fond of assonant rhymes and kind of um, the uh, singer-songwriter style or rapper style assonant, often feminine rhymes as he as he goes along. Uh, I found these poems unbearably annoying. I just thought they were terrible. He is smart. He is clever. He is well-read. Uh, and he is a capable writer. He just chooses to write really, really irritating, dumb, overly showily clever, shitty, shitty poems that suck and are horrible to listen to. That's <laughs> my considered opinion. But he also has written some really fine criticism. I, I already spent a, a part of an episode a, a while back uh, reading from and talking about his a withering and highly memorable uh, long review of the of the colossal Norton anthology of postmodern American poetry. Uh, it's great. I, I will I'll, I'll link to it again because it is really worth reading. He also wrote, uh, you know, he occasionally wrote little pieces in uh, the Chicago Tribune that I thought were, were were fairly smart. He he wrote a piece a while ago back when he was still an atheist. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the 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 new atheist movement was was at its most obnoxious. He wrote, I thought, a really sort of thoughtful, compassionate essay about uh, about a different kind of atheism, about a a slightly more open-hearted atheism that was not so concerned with proving people wrong, but but uh, but was based in 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 a, a compassion and a sense of. Of being in a, of, of sharing a a common condition with one's fellow man, whether or not one's fellow man uh, prayed to God. So, uh, I I've, I've quite liked some of his prose. I have found all of his poetry to be horrible. He he put out another book called The Second Sex, uh, which was was much like Alien versus Predator. Here's um. Here, I'll, I'll, here's a, 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 a representative sample uh, uh, stanza from the title poem. I say the wrong thing. I have OCD. My obsessive compulsions are disorderly. I say the wrong thing. Did I already say? I drive my dominatrix away. Whew, this meter's getting a little, little hectic there, but uh, terrible, just insufferable, awful unbearably bad and bad in the same way as alien versus predator so my you know my my kind of standing verdict on michael robbins was that he was a an aggressively bad poet who also wrote some really thoughtful and and lovely prose occasionally <laughs> as well as writing some some uh, uh prose that was that was very um that i i, I disagreed with heartily uh, and then a couple years ago, Eric Smith, who is the, the I think I mentioned him and maybe even this at some point before, but he, he's, he's the managing slash poetry editor of the Sewanee Review and a fine 
poet in his own right, but he pointed out to me when I said something about Michael Robbins in, in a bar, he pointed out to me that Michael Robbins has undergone a kind of conversion, really a sort of a, a manifold conversion as it happens. So he showed me some new Michael Robbins poems, and these were not rhyming. They were not metrical. They were earnest. They did not seem hyperactively to leap from subject and voice and reference uh, uh, to subject and voice and reference. They seemed to be maintaining a, a kind of a consistent lyric eye, and they, they even felt wistful. M most significantly, they felt potentially embarrassing, right? Michael Robbins' uh, uh, shitpost-style dumb meme poems are, can't be embarrassing because they are already ridiculous. They, they make fun of themselves more than anyone else ever could. And so it's impossible to point to them and say, oh, you're insufficiently in on the joke, Michael Robbins. You are insufficiently sophisticated. That's part of what's so odious about them. They're not even an honest attempt to get a laugh. They're, they are uh, too clever by half all the way down. <laughs> There's nothing else to them. And they don't for a minute risk genuine embarrassment. Now, nobody wants to write embarrassing poems. Nobody wants to make other people cringe at one's writing. However, if your poems never risk eliciting a cringe from your reader, if your poems never risk embarrassment, then it's a pretty good bet that you are not writing anything that matters to anyone, yourself included. You have to risk embarrassment. There has to be some sort of soft belly somewhere there. And the poems that Eric showed me, they were almost all soft belly. They, they did not... Uh, they did not get to the joke and wink faster than the reader could. They left themselves wide open and vulnerable to the reader's skepticism, even derision. I didn't love them as poems, but I even did cringe a little at, at some of them. But, but just the fact that I could do that told me that I was dealing with a new Michael Robbins. Now, it, it turns out, if you take him at his word that he has undergone not just a formal conversion, he has also undergone a religious conversion. He has now added to his uh, standing uh, 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 academic-ish, socially conversant, uh, you know, more or less uh, hip leftist American Marxism. He has added to that a bizarrely nihilistic brand of Christianity. I, I don't, it's not even really fair to call it a brand because he, he seems to be, it seems to be all his own interpretation, all his own version. He claims he is a Christian and he also claims to have no hope for anything, <laughs> including the, uh, the afterlife. So, you know, as sympathetic as I can be to Marxism, nihilism, and Christianity, each in their turn, 
and even acknowledge like i mean there are there are marxist christians or like sort of marxist sort of christians cornell west obviously comes to mind those are not totally those are not thoroughly incompatible they they have some points of conflict but you know there's a, a little picking and choosing is is uh, acceptable but christianity and nihilism <laughs> seems seems like a hard a hard a hard combination to swallow i mean that is some chalk and cheese toothpaste and orange juice shit i i i don't i my heart goes out to the man because i don't know what that means exactly but he does seem to be uh he seems to be both feeling wistful and feeling uh uh at, at a sort of a a grouchy peace with himself so Walkman, which is the very bad name of his new book of poems, uh, Walkman is, it's a good read. I've just read it the once, but it's really breezy. It's really inviting. His voice is quite confident. And it is mostly seemingly a, a, a monologue uh, broken up over the course of, of a few different poems, some of them quite long in which the the poet himself speaks to us in basically in you know line broken prose about his own feelings and some of his experiences in recent years and uh, uh, quitting alcohol and believing in jesus and believing in marxism and loving poetry and uh having some some sad having his heart broken a few times though he 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 does rant a, a couple a couple on a couple of occasions about the use of the word heart in poetry so i should probably find another way to say that there are also uh, a handful of poems that are snappy little little rhymy jokey poems they are um let me see if i can find a representative one here this one's called bear and it's uh, it has a, an, an, ep uh, an epigraph from the New York Times. The internet mourned over the weekend after unconfirmed reports that Petals, a bear that walked upright on its hind legs and was often captured on video strolling around New Jersey suburbs, may have been killed by a hunter. Here's Bear. They shot the bear that walked like a man. They shot some bears that walked like bears. I walk on as few legs as I can. Don't shoot me if I put on airs. So this is, you know, by my lights, sort of, uh, this is like the poor man's equivalent of, of a Richard Wilbur, jokey, silly, dumb riddle poem. R Richard Wilbur had a soft spot for jokey, dumb riddle poems. And if you are Richard Wilbur, then you are allowed to write as many jokey, dumb riddle poems as you damn well please. And God bless you. You know, every, every significant writer has, has his, uh, his soft spots, has his weaknesses, has his indulgences. I, I'm not a big fan of double dactyls, but boy, Anthony Hecht sure was. And God bless him. Fine. Uh, Michael Robbins has a soft spot for these these sort of goofy, sort of maybe socially conscious, little jokey, uh, uh, jokey rhyming punchline poems. And that's fine. That's fine. He has, he even has maybe one or two in here that, that, uh, 
that rise to that, that rise above above mere light verse say and and you know the suggest achieve something like pathos uh, I did like it's um it's a little heavy-handed but it's also I think pretty well done they say what you love will live on after what they mean is here's a noose and there's a rafter I mean it's it's uh it was a Dorothy Parker who has the poem about about um about uh, uh ways to kill yourself it's got it's got a little bit of that feel to it but you know I'll I'll, I'll bite I don't mind that most of the poem though is is this sort of talky rambling narration from the poet speaker Michael Robbins and I, as I said it's it's a it's an enjoyable read I read it quickly I read it with pleasure uh, and I recommend it it's worth reading it's good again I think Walkman is just an incredibly dumb title for a book but what do I know uh, it is however and I, I hesitate because uh, uh, formal and and uh, formally conservative poets uh, love to fold their arms and poke out their lower lips and sniff and declare that such and such isn't real poetry, not real poetry. Harumph! <laughs> it doesn't count as poetry. And and there's uh, there, there's no declaration that is sort of less credible and less meaningful in poetry criticism than saying this isn't poetry because you know of course in so far as anytime somebody calls something poetry anytime anytime the writer of a thing calls the thing he has written poetry we in this country at this moment in time have basically agreed to say all right i'll allow it Sure, fine. That that's poetry. That too can be poetry. And you know, for the most part, that's because allowing that inclusivity uh, leads to the the expansion of the definition of poetry. It, it leads to some new cool kinds of poetry, and sometimes some new not so cool kinds of poetry. But that that's fine. We we all understand that that there there that poetry is a very very big tent, and. There are within it many subcategories, and very few of us genuinely feel comfortable in all of these. So at risk of sounding like an, an aged, uh, silver-haired harumpher, I, I think that much as I, I found the book pretty enjoyable, far, far more enjoyable. I mean, I, it's, it, I can't compare this poem to his previous this book to his previous poems because his previous poems were were just insufferable and this poem was this book was was genuinely enjoyable with a few little little corny jokey short poems along the way that you know fine fine at risk of sounding like a for then i don't think this is poetry not not so much the little jokey rhyming riddle poems those are sure those are poems some of them are, are really just sort of goofs but but fine but but the bulk of it the long rambling line broken prose talky poems when i say i don't think they're really poetry i don't mean they're bad and i don't even mean that it's important that they be labeled something else 
I guess I just mean that by labeling them poetry, I, I am neither uh, aided in my understanding of them, right? I, I, I neither gain orientation in how to approach them, nor do I have my sense of what poetry can be enlarged. Instead, I, it just feels like a mismatch. I mean, really, you could call these personal essays that are just broken up into lines. Or you could call them, I mean, what it reminded me of more than, more than uh, almost anything is, is a podcast. I mean, th this could almost be like the transcript of a podcast complete with, with little, uh, little goofy joke poems as, as uh, interludes, breaking up the long, sort of wistful, quite clever, uh, highly self-aware uh, uh, poetry man monologue. So, so in the 1930-something, Jose Ortega y Gasset published this uh, uh, pithy, uh, passionate, socially, philosophically preoccupied screed called The Revolt of the Masses. It's a short book. It's, it's, it's a tidy little, little composition. And it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's sort of a... It's broken into chapters, if I remember, but it's it kind of it ends up being almost a series of little you know, Nietzschean aphorisms, sort of you know longish aphorisms, and it even stirs the emotions at times the way a poem can, and as well as at times maybe infuriating the reader as well the way poems also can. It's I think usually categorized as uh, uh, essay, sometimes you know politics sometimes sociology or psychology even maybe, possibly history, but really it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a critical essay. It's a cultural essay. Now, you could put the label of poetry on it and put it on the poetry shelf in the bookstore. And you, know, you could even clarify in an introduction that, that Ortega y Gasset, say, in a parallel universe, had declared that this was poetry. And yet when you read it, it wouldn't, knowing that he'd called it poetry, wouldn't help you to read it. And reading it wouldn't help you to think about poetry in a particularly different way. You would just read it and say, this really reads like a cultural essay. And it's like a, a pretty competent cultural essay. And, and I, I disagree with it here. I agree with it there. But but you wouldn't say, now, now I really am thinking about poetry in a new way. It just, it's just like a mislabel, right? It's like when, when the wrong price tag ends up on an item and you think, well, that's not quite accurate. This, this lamp can't be $5,000. So I, I guess I, I really just wanted to say that I was pleasantly surprised to have my opinion of Michael Robbins as a poet changed. I, I still don't know that I have, have read uh, a good poem from him, or, or at least, you know, a, a, um, a more than, uh, limerick sized poem. He, ha he does have some, some little, little teeny tiny numbers that are, that have a, a little snap and a little satisfaction to them. But, you know, I, I don't know that I've, let me put it this way. I, I still have not read a good book of poetry from him. Uh, I have, however, read a good book from him. It's called Walkman. It was published this year. 
Uh, it just happens to have ended up on the wrong fucking shelf. Okay, so the segment you just listened to, I recorded about two weeks ago, maybe a little more, and I sat on it because I felt like I wasn't quite done thinking through what I was trying to think about. I I read Michael Robbins' new book again, still not real carefully, I just sort of breezed through it again, still enjoyed it, still thought the title was stupid. Uh, I've, maybe I'm a little bit less firm in my impression that this is a radical departure. I got, I got sort of more, I mean, it's still a pretty radical departure, but I, there's a little more of the old Michael Robbins evident than I'd, I'd previously accounted for. And I think some of the little jokey rhymey poems are a little more charming than I'd previously given them credit for. I, I'm going to read this one that I, that I, I like pretty well. This is just called Poem. It's a little four-liner. Scallop draggers far offshore pull up tusks where long before megafauna browsed in grass. Ocean now. This too shall pass. You know, it's still got some of that snappy Michael Robbins smirk to it, but in this case, he's repurposing a familiar utterance. In this case, an old, the uh, here it's it's the, the old, Persian adage, this too shall pass. He's repurposing it not just to make fun of it or to be kooky, but, you know, to frame its sentiment in a truly, you know, vast scope, looking at, uh, you know, what the what the geologists call deep time. So I like that one. It it uh it still 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 has still has that that uh, that Michael Robin sheen to it, but it wasn't quite so obnoxious, and it it actually seemed to be aiming at a, a kind of a poignancy that I I appreciate in lyric poetry. I I also I think I just wanted to well all right so I. I really am not interested. <laughs> Because rather than recording this segment in order to dig myself out of the trouble that I got into in the last segment, I'm actually going to be digging a lot deeper. <laughs> but rather than trying to draw some line in the sand and say this far and no further, I I really am not all that interested in saying in some sort of negative sense, this is not poetry, this doesn't count as poetry. I guess what I'm really more interested in doing here is trying to point toward this other thing and saying, hey, you know, is it possible that rather than simply calling this poetry, there, there's this other thing happening? Because I tend to suspect that there is this other thing happening. Now, in, in the previous segment, I compared Robin's book to Ortega y Gasset's 1930, I think it was 1930, uh, rant, in book form, The Revolt of the Masses. I think The Revolt of the Masses is not the best comparison for Robin's book, mostly because The Revolt of the Masses is re really is, it's a piece of cultural criticism. It is, to steal a word from Chris Childers, uh, it, it is a tendentious argument. It, it has a bone to pick and it picks it for its you know 150 or so pages. Uh, and Robbins, while he has some gripes and grievances, he's really not 
uh, he's not so much hammering home an argument as he is e- expressing a a uh, a perspective, a uh, moment in his own existence. He is giving voice to. He is uh, he is exercising a voice. He is exercising a a voice that has that is both familiar and developing. Whereas Ortega y Gasset really is, he's picking a fight. So I I wanted to maybe dig into this from a couple of different directions because I think that there are, as I said, there are actually even more ways that I can get myself into trouble. Um, I, I thought maybe a good place actually to start this new... <laughs> foray into self-destruction would be with another really good email I got from Coleman. So Coleman, as you will remember, is a uh, very thoughtful and uh, patient (laughs) listener to the show who, uh, here. So he wrote, uh, this this email was a little, maybe a couple couple weeks ago, perhaps. But he, he wrote saying that he, he, he wrote saying he appreciated the episode with James Nguyen because it helped him think a little bit about what makes the difference between a good poem and a bad poem, which is something he's been worrying over uh, a little bit without maybe coming to any absolute firm conclusions. We had some smart thoughts along the way. So he he brings up his his father-in-law who has perfect pitch as a as a um, an opportunity to use music as a as a, a kind of a point of comparison. So that he he mentions that here, but I'll just read this this little uh, section that I thought was pretty smart and that brought up I thought a really worthwhile question. All right. The problem with something like poetry, this is Coleman speaking, the problem with something like poetry, as you mentioned in an episode when you were comparing it to rap, is there's no consensus on what makes it good. It's not just like it is in music, where my musical father-in-law and my musical friend have very different tastes. He talks about his musical friend who's into uh, 12-tone music and, and sort of uh, contemporary composers, which, though his father-in-law is perfectly equipped to appreciate music, they're not just not to his father's, father-in-law's taste. So in poetry, broadly defined, there's also no way to differentiate between my mother-in-law's sense of good-bad from my father-in-law's sense of good-bad. He well, I'm really bringing in, <laughs> really bringing in Coleman's in-laws. He mentions his mother-in-law because his mother-in-law has, has is tone deaf, so so her she she still has her own opinions or her own tastes, but she uh, she's not equipped in the same way that his father-in-law is to evaluate music, I guess, objectively, if if that's possible. Um, but then he steps back from that to say, or maybe there is at a very basic level, maybe there is a, a kind of a consensus or a way to differentiate between the good and the bad for poetry. The Christian poem, Footprints, is phenomenally popular. People love it. I I, I, I hesitate to try to summarize it, um, partly because I, I only remember it from, you know, uh, half a dozen prayer cards, you know, 30 years ago, and ha- partly because I'm sure all of you have heard it in some form or another. Very simply, it's this uh, very familiar and, and oft-copied uh, poem meditation thing, Christian sentiment uh, that tells a story about a man looking back at his life and seeing two sets of footprints with Jesus, you know, Jesus' feet walking alongside him. But then anytime that he he was really in trouble, there was only one set of footprints. And he he says to Jesus, oh, well, why did you abandon me whenever, whenever I was going through some hard times? And Jesus, of course, says, I didn't abandon you. There was only one set of footprints during your hard times because I was carrying you on my back. So 
right, we get it. Um, so he, he brings us up to say, it's phenomenal, phenomenally popular, people love it. I'm on board with the basic sentiment it expresses, this is Coleman again, that God is close even in times of struggle. Coleman is, is a, one of my uh, very genuine and very thoughtful and considered uh, 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 religious listeners. Can't imagine why a religious listener would tolerate me for, for two-tenths of a second, but I'm very grateful for uh, all of your tolerance. At any rate, Coleman goes on, but it's not a good poem. He, he, he appreciates what it's saying. It's just not a good poem. In fact, I'm not sure it's a poem at all. And I suspect there would be a pretty broad consensus among poets, regardless of their style, that it's not a good poem because it seems to pay very little attention to the effects of its, to the effect of its sounds. So I wonder if the one standard that could be agreed upon that could be agreed on is that a poem's quality depends in part on the way it uses sound to produce an effect. With that in mind, I can say Footprints is a bad poem as a poem without, to my mind, criticizing the people who love it or even necessarily disagreeing with them, since I don't think their affection for it is particularly attached to things that make a poem a poem. I think all of that seems pretty sound. Uh, he goes on to say, I don't know if, if anyone thinks sound is the only factor in poetry, but beyond sound, there seems to be uh, infinite variety in what pe different people identify as essential to poetry. For me, it's the way a combination of word sounds, word meanings, line sounds, rhythm, line meanings, movement, coherence, meaning of the whole, blah, 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 blah. All right, so I'll, 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 I'll um, break off there. He, he goes on, he, the, the point he sort of, he, he brings up at least for consideration is the possibility that sound might be really the the crucial criterion for distinguishing between poetry and non-poetry or, or worthwhile and not worthwhile poetry. And, and I think it's a pretty damn good one. Uh, I think it is, it is certainly one that, that many other far better thinkers and poets than I have taken to be kind of the central question. Uh, uh, Frost, um, said, among other things, I think he was the one who's, who's usually credited with saying that poetry is what gets lost in translation. Now, much can get lost in translation other than sound, but sound is, is, is the first thing that is lost in translation. When you, when you change the meaning from one language to another, the very first thing you lose is the sound. And of course, along with that, you lose, if you're dealing with poems by somebody like Frost, you lose all of the meter as well as all of the rhyme, the alliteration, the assonance, all of it. It, it. Even if you expand Coleman's uh, standard from sound in its raw sense to even the trans translate, un, you know, the, the untranslatable quality of poetry, the stuff that, that you could not paraphrase to save your life. Uh, you know, you can't paraphrase rhyme. You could replace one rhyme with another, but it's still not even the same rhyme. Um, there are some rough attempts at transliteration where people try to make one language sound like another, which maybe can work for little little uh, bits and pieces and moments. Most of the examples that I have ever heard of were pretty were basically dirty jokes rather than being rather than being actual attempts to carry sound over genuinely. Even among uh, serious classicists today. Uh, at least, well, I'll say the classicists I know who translate ancient Greek and Latin poetry into English, not in all cases, but in many cases as a kind of standard, they tend to translate one set of sounds into another so that the, the snappiness of a Latin epigram uh, doesn't 
doesn't land quite the same way in English if it doesn't rhyme. And so they will impose accentual syllabic meter and rhyme where uh, a mere quantitative meter was present before and so on and so on and so on. So uh, poetry is, is definitely what gets lost in translation. If you want a, a really tidy and, and old, familiar, sturdy example of this, one that, that's, that's always ready to hand is Sun Under Wood. For those of you who, I mean, I'm assuming this, this sort of goes without saying for, for most of the people listening. If you happen to be the handful of people who listen to this who don't already spend a lot of time thinking about poetry, then God bless you too. You, like the religious listeners, I, I'm baffled by and grateful for. But just as a real quick example, Sun Under Wood, which is a, an old anonymous Middle English poem. It's like seven or 800 years old. Uh, very, very short poem. Very, very well known. And uh, completely, completely untranslatable, perfectly untranslatable. So in uh, weird sounding Middle English that I, my, the pronunciation of which I have not attempted to improve since I was in high school, memorizing the beginning of the Canterbury Tales, uh, it, it, Sun Underwood goes about like this. Nu gotsona underwoda, miruith mairidis di feroda, nu gotsona under tre, miruith mairidis sonende. So now goeth sun under wood, me ruith mary the fair road. Nu gotsona, now, now goeth sun under tree, me ruith mary the sun and thee, thy sun and thee. So now goeth sun, now goes sun under wood. I pity Mary, your fair road, road there is no translation for, even from Middle English into Modern English. It means both face and rude or cross. It's a, it's a play on words there. It's actually more than one play on words. We'll get there. So now goes sun under wood. I rue, I pity uh, Mary, th thy fair road. Now, uh, now goeth sun, now goes sun under tree. Miruth, I pity Mary, thy son and thee. So uh, this is a, a, a solstice poem, a wintertime poem, looking out into the forest as the sun goes down, as the sun gets you know lower in the sky, as, as, the, as the season goes on, you see the sun sink down in the woods behind the trees. And this image calls to mind the other sun, another play on words, uh, Jesus, the son of God, sinking down under the wood, under the cross that he's hanging on. So the, the sun sinking down around the time that we you know celebrate Christmas, the sun sinking down behind the trees echoes the uh, son of God sinking down on the cross. And the speaker of the poem uh, uh, speaks with compassion to Mary, the mother of God saying, I, you know, I, I pity, I rue Mary, your fair face, I pity you but also this fair cross, the crosses. Your face is beautiful, but also the cross is beautiful. Uh, I, um, I, I pity uh, that, you know, uh, now goeth sun under tree, the tree being, of course, the literal tree, as well as the, the tree that was cut up into the cross. Uh, I pity Mary, I miruith Mary, uh, thy son and thee, your son and you. So uh, all of the, 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 you know, the, the play on sun, on uh, road, uh, is, is clearly untranslatable. Uh, just to make it even more complicated, <laughs> I will say that there is yet another play on words in this poem, and the play is on the word fair. Uh, thy fair rode, the rode being the cross. But if this is also the face, right, to just linger on that meaning of the word for a moment, 
I pity Mary your fair face. Well, fair we know, of course, means beautiful. This is saying Mary is beautiful. But if it is fair, what that also means is that it's pale. And of course, one's face becomes pale when one spends too much time out of the sun, which, uh, which, which makes this poem really a sort of a perfect intersection of meanings in Middle English and completely untranslatable. You can't even bring it into modern English. So that would be one very small and tidy example of how poetry is what gets lost in translation. And if we went no further than that, I think uh, Frost and Coleman would have a pretty good case for saying, well, well that's poetry, hands brushed off, uh, let's call it a day. And, and I think that's, that's, as I said, pretty fair and lots of smarter people than I have been pretty satisfied by that. I am not completely satisfied by it, mostly because I realized something in retrospect about how I think about poetry. Now, when I sit down to write poetry, sound is probably my, my primary compass. Right? Sound is probably just in getting lines down on the page is probably the, mostly the way I think about how to write at all, to begin with at least. Uh, and it's certainly a very strong uh, consideration in revision. But the last time I taught poetry, the last time I taught poetry writing, a creative writing class to undergraduates, I, uh, I used as my textbook, I wrote, I had a you know, packet of some poems, uh, some printouts from different eras and people and so forth. But as, as my only real textbook that I, that I asked the students to buy, I used the Odes of Horace translated by David Ferry. So this is four pretty short books of lyric poems, odes, by Horace, whose you know, who's, who's use of uh, the term ode sort of gives us mostly our meaning of the word today. Uh, he also you know, went a long way toward inventing a lot of how we think about the lyric poem today. It, it's, a, it's a terrific collection, and David Ferry's translation is, is wonderful. It also includes uh, the, the Latin original in it in, in uh, uh, facing pages, so you know, on FOSS translation. You can see the Latin facing directly across from the English. It's a great book. I've recommended it before. I, I used that to teach writing poetry. What that meant, though, I realized only in retrospect, is that what I was really teaching was the translatable part of poetry. I, I really didn't teach sound at all. Now, I didn't say that one should not learn sound. I didn't dismiss sound to them. In fact, I, I made a point early on of saying, here's this enormous thing I'm just not teaching you this semester because it's a one semester class. And like any one semester class, or honestly any class at all on writing poetry, it's necessarily just excruciatingly narrow. So I, I chose for the purposes of this one semester introduction to poetry for undergrads to say, let's look at a rhetorical shape rather than a metrical prosodic shape. Let's just look at the shape of the argument. And so we talked about writing uh, encomia and elegies and maledictions and benedictions and so on. We, we, we took the arguments of Horace's poems and we used those as models. And I think that, I guess that is, 
in answer to Coleman's standard, I guess I would say that that it's even when I read a poem and I don't see what makes it especially untranslatable, right? When I read a lot of contemporary poetry, especially a lot of contemporary free verse, I think, well, this is sort of prose broken into line breaks. But I, but I think there is a difference between just uh, talky talk that uh, that could be broken into prose theoretically and something like a poem that has emotion to it. And this is what I did find really lacking in most of Robin's book. All right, so like a really simple example of this, really simple example would be Shakespeare's Sonnet 73. Shakespeare's Sonnet 73, maybe one of the greatest sonnets in English, uh, makes a very simple argument. Now, it rhymes, it's in meter, it is beautifully written. I would not ever want to impose a non-English version of it on anyone. However, it's totally translatable, or at least the argument of it is translatable. It has a shape to it. It has an elegance to it that you could, you know, pretty easily imagine rendering in another language. Uh, let me, I think I know it by heart. I should know it by heart. Probably all of you already know it pretty well anyway, but here it goes. Uh, Sonnet 73 by Shakespeare goes, <clears throat> That time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self, which seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed by that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. That's it, I think, pretty well. I, I may have muddled a couple of the little connecting words in there, but I think I think I basically got it there. And and it's a it's a pretty straightforward argument. There are some really wonderful uh, niceties in the the language on a on a you know a phrase by phrase and line by line level. But basically, he, it's broken into these four rhetorical sections. In the first, he says, "Hey, uh, I'm getting old, and you could imagine me being like the season of fall." And then in the second, he says, I'm getting old, and, and you could imagine me being like the twilight part of the day. And then in the third, he says, well, I'm getting old, and you could imagine me being like the, the, the back end of a fire before it's quite turned to cold ashes, but when it's, you know, after the major flames have sort of died down. And then in the last little section, the, last, the little couplet, the, the envoy, he says, with a kind of an implied imperative, you see all this, this thou perceivest. So love love that well, which thou must leave ere long. Be good to me, because then I'm not gonna be around a lot longer. I, I'm gonna you will be leaving me. I, I've always liked, by the way, that that which thou must leave, right? He doesn't there's something very sentimental about saying, I will leave you. But there's there's a there's a pretty cold eye <laughs> that he's casting on life on death, to to steal a phrase from Yeats, when he says which thou must leave. He imagines himself being a thing that the living beloved is leaving behind. Love that well, which thou must leave ere long. 
You could see translating that into another language. It makes sense. It has a rhetorical sort of shape to it that is more than just uh, one note that he's hammering over and over again. And, you know, I was thinking about this and I didn't have all of my, my, my thoughts together. I read a couple of, I thought, pretty good interviews. Um, interviews with poets. Interviews with poets, by the way, usually terrible. Usually just wretched. But I read a couple that I thought were pretty good. Uh, one of them was quite recent. This is from the Creative Independent, which I'd never heard of before, which looks, it's, it's, it's a, it seems to be very, very hip. It's like a very hip online publication that deliberately looks like the uh, computer screens that I remember looking at when I was a kid taking computer class in like 1989. Um, I mean, it looks terrible, but I think it's, it's terrible in a hip, deliberate way. Anyway, there was a very brief interview with this poet, Melissa Lasada Oliva, on there. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she's a young poet who, who's another poet who comes from the spoken word world and is sort of uh, blended into the poetry on the page world without uh, without totally crossing over or rather without totally uh, abandoning the spoken word behind her but she you know it was, it was a very conversational uh, chatty uh, interview but she she made a point that I, I appreciated about do-gooderism in poetry and and she starts with this question that, that I of course was was thinking about uh, because I, because of the the Michael Robbins book she says for a while I was like is anything poetry and I'm still leaning towards yes and she goes on to talk a little bit about pessimism and people trying to do 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 good with their poetry and then sort of uh, 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 pointless but still satisfying observations of beauty. And she, she finally, she says, I feel like poetry's job is for beauty. I think it keeps us human. I don't think it saves the world. I think that's impossible. It's kind of a nice ambiguity there as to whether it's impossible for poetry to save the world or it's impossible for anything to save the world. But I, I appreciated that that uh, distinction. She, she sort of said, well, you know, it would be a shame if we lost poetry to do-gooderism because it's not all that good at saving the world, but it is good at producing beauty. The the longer, and I think it's kind of maybe more more ultimately insightful interview, though I did appreciate the the uh, Melissa Lasada uh, Oliva. The, the longer one was one that uh, Helena Fetter, who, who, whom I know a little, did a few years ago um, with Stephen Dunn in the Georgia Review. And Stephen Dunn is a really great shop talker. He, he has a pretty good book about poetry. I haven't read it in years, but I remember it being very good, um, called Walking Light. And any interview I've, I've been able to find with him has been pretty worthwhile. He, he doesn't pull a lot of punches with regard to his poetry, his students' poetry, or, or anyone's poetry. Uh, he, he tends to be quite candid. And here he, he, he offers, I think, a really worthwhile discussion of the question of a turn in poetry. Now, if you know Stephen Dunn's poems, then you know that he's very talky. And he is what I would consider, though I'm sure he would quibble with me here, but what I would consider to be, he's pre a pretty translatable poet. It's not that hard to imagine Stephen Dunn in German or Italian or Spanish. Maybe the, the, uh, the, the linguistic sentiment or, or spirit is a little different in some of those languages, but, but he, he, I think you can imagine the 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 weight of his poems carrying over with with relatively little loss 
into other languages in a way that, say, with Byron, it's impossible. You know? Um, though I know a lot of non-English people like Byron. Whatever. Anyway, uh, Dunn has this, I think, good discussion of the shape of a poem that isn't really concerned with sound. And, and that's why I thought it was maybe a good companion to Coleman's smart consideration of sound. So he, I'll, I'll just jump into the middle of his discussion here, and I'm going to compress slightly. But he says, uh, toward the end of the interview, he says, what ruins most of my students' poems is a failure to develop new allegiances as the poem goes on. What ruins most of my students' poems is a failure to develop new allegiances as the poem goes on. They like their original subject too much. I am in no way wedded to my original subject ever. As the poem progresses, I find myself caring about it less and less. Helena jumps in there to say that must be remarkably freeing, generative. It's almost inhuman in Jeffers' sense of the word. She was talking about, was talking about Robinson and Jeffers earlier. Uh, Dunn continues, It seems quite natural to me. The first four or five lines you write in a poem create a certain series of promises and expectations in yourself as well as in the reader. If you're wedded to your original subject, if you don't hear the language you've put in your poem, you're going to screw up the turn because you won't hear that something else which has happened to your subject. You have at least two allegiances when you start. One to what you think you want to say, and the other to the language you find yourself using. There's a trade-off all the way through. And at a certain point, the poem has its own manners, its own decorum. When I get stuck and I can't find the right next moment, it's usually because I'm a little... But it's usually because I'm still a little attached to my original subject. When I want to make things symmetrical and use the language that I used at the beginning, I know that I've run out of imagination at that point. The poem has to be alive all the way through. And, and that, I think, clarified for me some of what I was chewing over in the, the Robbins book because... I think that setting aside some of those those little little tidy tidy rhyming lyrics for the long rambling poems of of uh, confession, they're kind of like um, uh, low impact confessional poetry. Just to give you, I'll just give you the very beginning of the book. Uh, this is this is Michael Robbins. The very beginning of this book, Walkman. First poem's called Walkman. I didn't mean to quit drinking. It just sort of happened. I'd always assumed it'd be difficult, or not difficult, difficult exactly, but impossible. Then one New Year's Eve, twenty years ago, at the VFW, Craig and I were drinking beer bottles. We're drinking beer from brown bottles, peeling the labels off into little confetti nests. In Mexico, the previous New Year's Eve, I'd started drinking again after a year sober. I, tra I traveled by myself in Oaxaca for a, a month and had at least two beautiful experiences. He goes on and on. As I said, it's a, it's a winning and a, a char fairly charming voice. But uh, there is not a... the 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 He's not hammering home an argument. He, he doesn't exactly have a bone to pick, like Ortega, you guess that. But he is letting us hear what's on his mind. He, he's giving us a glimpse into the the life and soul of Michael Robbins. And nowhere does it feel especially as if the poem becomes responsible to itself in the way that Dunn is talking about here. It is just a pleasant 
ramble. It is uh, the premise of the rambling, the premise of these long poems that make up the bulk of his book. The premise of the poem is the same at the end that it is at the beginning. Whereas with Dunn, what he suggests is that once you start writing a poem, you become, you, you are on the hook for what you've put down, or at least what you've decided to keep. And the poem has to begin to respond to that. And your own original idea for it, your own original impulse has to step back. You have to let go. He says, he says you have to form new allegiances. I, I don't, um, that's what I didn't think Robbins really did anywhere in this book. I don't think he formed any new allegiances. And that's okay. The same way that it's, it's okay when uh, somebody you're going on a long car ride with who's telling you a story about his life, he just keeps telling you a story about his life. He, he just rambles on. He tells you about another thing. He tells you about another one of those beautiful experiences in Waxaca. Uh, Oaxaca, I guess is how you're supposed to say it. Fucking uh, pronunciation doesn't matter. Uh, and that's all right. As I said, it's it's perfectly pleasant to listen to. And while it's not really like Ortega y Gasset, it is quite like a podcast. Um, I, I just, it, for, for any of you for whom it might be unclear what I mean, I guess, by this question of a poem's responsibility to itself, I, I will quickly... And I'm going to do an even shittier job than I did with the Shakespeare, but I'm just going to quickly offer maybe what I think is a pretty good example of a poem becoming responsible to itself. And this is in totally in translation because it's uh, this is two ancient languages, neither of which I I have. So in uh, Sappho fragment 31, and I'm going to paraphrase these so horribly I can I can already hear uh, Chris Childers screaming into his uh, ear pods. But I'm gonna I'm gonna put links to his wonderful translations of of both uh, Sappho 31 and Catullus 51 uh, in the show notes. But just very quickly, Sappho 31 is a poem that starts with Sappho saying, "That man is like a god." What man? Well, as the poem continues, we hear that man is like a god who sits next to you, because. She, she's not actually praising the man or she, she is praising him, but she's praising him because of the light reflected onto him from the woman that she really loves. She's so bedazzled. She's so astounded by this woman that just the person next to this woman is godlike to her. Sappho then, after sort of marveling at the godlike presence of this man adjacent to the woman she loves, Sappho then considers her own uh, proximity to the beloved. And she, she says, well, unlike this guy who's able to sit there and, and drink you in, when I hear your voice, when I see your face, my, my throat dries up and I feel sick and I get a chill in my limbs and my eyes uh, black out and I, I fall over like I'm dead. I go green, like, like grass. Now, now, Sappho's poem breaks off. It's a fragment. We, we lost, we don't have the end of it. But Catullus, hundreds of years later, translated her poem from, I think it was Aeolian Greek. Again, I can just I can hear the, the faint screams of Chris Childers. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Uh, he translated her poem from, from Aeolian Greek or whatever, whatever Greek it was into Latin in the first century BC, and he, he continued the poem. So, so he, 
addresses it. Uh, he starts again with the man standing next to the woman, but he's talking about a specific married woman and he is using her, he's using Sappho as a stand-in for his beloved. He calls his beloved Lesbia because he doesn't want to use her real name in his poems. He is similarly dumbstruck when he looks at his beloved. And then he turns again and, 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 and considers well, what, what sort of a lover is he? And he ends the poem having, uh, having admired the, the man who stands next to the beloved, having then shaken his head at his own inability to stand up straight in the presence of the beloved. He then, he says, what's your problem? Otium, idleness, as it's sometimes translated. Or I think uh, Childers calls it free time, otium, idleness, free time, laziness. That's your problem, Catullus, laziness. You're not seizing your opportunity. You're not acting. You're just sitting by. And his gaze from there widens further. It's not just that he is losing this woman because of his idleness or his laziness. It, it, this is the same idleness that has cost uh, kings their kingdoms. That has brought about the destruction of whole ancient cities now lost to time. So the, the poem is very far from simply uh, wagging a finger at one particular hang-up or one particular feeling. It, it moves on the occasion of itself into another kind of consideration, into another kind of meditation. Uh, you see this throughout Horace as well um, and throughout pretty much any worthwhile poem. But the poem very seldom stands still in its one initial perspective. It tends to respond to what it is said as it goes along. Uh, and the Robbins poems don't. And that's why rather than saying these are bad poems because poems should do this thing that they don't do, I'm inclined to say, well, they're, they're just sort of maybe not poems. You know, if, if I think about the Ortega y Gasset book again, which, which again is, is not a great book, but just to characterize it for a moment, this is a this is a short, elegantly written book uh, with a with a an extremely controlled and brilliant, insightful speaker with uh, with a with a particular point of view, one I don't entirely share, but who has a specific criticism about modern life, about his culture, in you know, early twentieth century Spain, and he swings that axe. He swings that hatchet over the course of this 150 pages or so again and again and again and again in example after example after example. This is a book that, as I said, is a tendentious. It, it follows a particular tendency, a particular itch, a particular uh, hankering for uh, a, a fight. This is the kind of book that uh, you can imagine the voice of the book saying, and another thing, right? You could easily imagine this book having an extra chapter or maybe one fewer chapters. And it wouldn't be changed radically because it's not as if it, 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 it really pursues a single uh, arc of an argument from beginning to, through middle to end. 
It's more like a series of entries in an ongoing gripe. And uh, it's totally gripping. It's totally worth reading. And it, it is written with great economy and great precision. Even in translation, that's evident. Now, this is not, as I said, really very much like what Michael Robbins is doing. But it is, I think, quite like what, say, Claudia Rankin was doing in her 2014 book, Citizen, which was uh, celebrated as a collection of poetry, but I think probably wrongly so. Now, again, not because I'm interested in saying who, you know, this counts as poetry and this doesn't. Uh, it, the, uh, the, the National Book Critics Circle nominated Citizen both for Best Poetry Collection that year and for Best Criticism best book of criticism. I think tellingly, because really that's what it was. It was it was a book of cultural criticism. It's a very smart book of cultural criticism. It's an extremely lucid book of cultural criticism. It is cutting. It is memorable. It is furious and very supremely controlled. Uh, you could imagine it having another chapter. Or you could imagine it being one chapter shorter. And while you might say, oh, I would, I would miss this section you know, on the tennis, or I would miss this section on the, the confrontation in the car, you, you also could imagine maybe one extra section that would be pretty good. And it wouldn't fundamentally change the shape or the impact of the book. In the same way, it's, it's not as if the book is, is a series of really... Uh, keen standalone numbers. It's a book that says, and another thing, it is tendentious. It has a bone to pick with modern life and it picks it very, very skillfully. Uh, I, I, as I, I've said, I, I did briefly study under Claudia Rankin and holy shit, man, the, the woman was never anything if she was not in control. <laughs> her language uh, and her intelligence are always just uh, breathtakingly, <laughs> bracingly uh, controlled. It's a very impressive book. And, you know, the reason it was called a book of poetry, to be honest, is that she's a poet. That's what she's mostly known as. That's what she mostly called herself. And so, fine, no harm, no foul, right? I mean, the same is true for Michael Robbins. That's why we call that poetry. But, uh, Though Michael Robbins is not writing a, a book of, uh, of a tendentious argument the way that Ortega Gasset or Claudia Rankin were, he, he, what he is doing is, I think, similar to what she's doing in that it is not, the writing doesn't question itself once it falls onto the page. It doesn't form new allegiances because of what has occurred on the page. It comes into the room with an agenda and it retains that agenda or it retains that perspective or that attitude or that outlook from beginning to end. Again, rather than saying that, that this means it fails as poetry, I'm inclined to say, well, call it poetry if you like. I'm not going to fight you. But I think maybe it, it would be better termed something else that would, that would um, account for what's happening here a little bit better. 
So a couple of other things came to mind. I'm, I'm wrapping up here. I know this has gone long, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw in another um, poem at the end of this this episode. I'm also probably not gonna edit it very much because though I recorded the first segment two weeks ago, I'm recording this segment uh, probably mere hours before I'm, I'm gonna release this. So it's gonna be a little shaggy on the back end today. But uh, a couple other things came to mind. I, I, I had a conversation with my friend. Uh, Ryan Wilson about some of this. Um, again, as with anyone else I've cited here, uh, Coleman or Chris Childers or Ryan, uh, the troublesome opinions I may express here are, are mine and mine alone. I don't want to get anyone else in trouble. But he, he suggested that maybe part of what was really in question here was personality. But maybe what we're really talking about here. And with, you know, I see the same thing in, in the slush pile sometimes in, in poetry and prose. I will get work and I'll say, well, maybe this is broken into lines or maybe it's broken into paragraphs. Maybe this, this says that it's an essay with a particular title. Maybe this says it's a poem or a story with a particular, uh, you know, unit of, of uh, storytelling or of, of lyric to it. But, but really it just feels like more stuff in a particular tendency or direction or with a particular attitude, a particular outlook in a particular vein. It feels like more stuff of which we could have even more or slightly less, and it wouldn't fundamentally change what we're dealing with here. I think, I think what Ryan said about personality really struck a nerve. I thought about something else that... Um, I'd heard, so Felix Biederman, uh, one of the hosts of the widely <laughs> beloved and despised podcast, Chapo Trap House. So he, he said, and this is pretty close to a direct quote, if, if not exactly. He has said, podcasting is easy, but only some people can do it. Podcasting is easy, but only some people can do it. I take that to be uh, a a more conversational way of saying that the, the uh, skill to talent ratio required to produce a successful podcast is exceedingly low. It's unusually low, right? That you don't have to work all that hard, but you have to be the right person. You have to be born with something. Podcasters are born, not made would be another way of saying that. I don't, I don't really agree. <laughs> I don't really think that's exactly true, but I think it is getting at something. The same way that Ryan's observation about personality was getting at something. And the same reason that I initially did link the Ortega y Gasset to the Michael Robbins, though they're not really the same thing. Uh, they're not doing exactly the same thing quite. I think they are fundamentally coming from the same place which is that I think all of these are really, and the same goes ultimately for Claudia Rankin's book. This is what we call now content. The nature of... So, so one of the, the quirks of podcasting is that the, the medium is friendlier than almost any other medium other than maybe Wikipedia to digression. Podcasting loves digression. You can get lost. You can go down a rabbit hole all day long. And for the most part, if people like listening, they will continue to listen. And that, that tells you something, I think, worthwhile, which is that 
as with what you know as your parents always told you about that great professor in college it doesn't necessarily matter what course she's teaching what matters is that she's teaching it what we're really interested in is not so much uh the the matter as the personality now I don't flatter myself that my personality is especially winning, and I have no real uh, way to account for whatever effect any of this might produce when I put it out there. But I will say that when it comes to Michael Robbins, when it comes to Claudia Rankin, when it comes to Ortega Igaset, when it comes to a lot of podcasts I listen to, you know, they they often do ha- have the same bone to pick week after week. They often do have a similar note to strike. And they often do get lost in digressions. I mean, that's the other thing that happens. Good Lord, throughout Walkman, it's just a, just wild digressions in the midst of quite long poems, much of which get swallowed up by uh, some note that came up halfway for no particular reason. Um, but throughout, there is a consistent voice. There, there is a consistent attitude. There is a consistent outlook. And that outlook is not fundamentally questioned because of what it is said a moment before at any point throughout. Now, so what? <laughs> so who gives a shit about any of this? Maybe nobody, probably nobody. But it, it struck me that there is a thing here maybe happening. And I, one final, one final uh, uh, thought that came to mind when I was when I was chewing all this over. I read this little essay in LitHub. So this is an essay that came up in LitHub recently. This is called In Defense of Poetic Plagiarism. This was written, uh, it's published October 6th by Sam Rivieri, who's a British poet and uh, and novelist. He, by the way, his, his new novel, uh, which is called Dead Souls, is uh, apparently a just rattling bonkers speculative fiction in which uh, it, it takes place in a in an inconceivably exotic world where uh, poetry is important. <laughs> so um, I I have actually just confirmed that I am going to I'm I'm <laughs> I am going to make Brian Platzer read this book for your listening. Uh, pleasures that'll be that'll be coming up down the road uh, a, a probably furious discussion of dead souls by Sam Rivieri with our friend Brian but in the meantime I read this little piece on poetic plagiarism and you know God bless the man he's coming up with a piece to help promote his book his book uh, obviously is about poetry and uh, plagiarism it, it takes it is a is a part of it he he takes up a kind of a an anti straw man argument in in this this piece where he he says hey remember remember 10 or 15 years ago how everybody was really mad about poetic plagiarism hey wasn't that bullshit and man isn't it doesn't it suck to have all these poetry cops monitoring us and and telling us that we can't copy and borrow things because because that's really what poetry is all about is copying things it's sort of an argument that that responds to claims that that no real person is actually making uh, if, if you remember any of the poetry plagiarism scandals from like 10 or 15 years ago, most of them were cases where people 
you know, lifted poems wholesale from relatively obscure poets, entered them directly into contests, and then won money with them. So it was not, this was not uh, great, you know, good artists borrow, great artists steal. This was just, uh, this was like a, a, a shitty, a shitty low-level scam. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think that there was, I, I think that his, his lament for uh, our, our lack of tolerance of poetic plagiarism is a little bit, uh, is a little bit silly and, and a little bit unnecessary. But he, he talks about, of course, Eliot and about uh, the Romantics and about uh, copyright. And Wordsworth was apparently a real piece of shit when it came to uh, copyright, uh, as was the Walt Disney Company, which comes in <laughs> once more for, for some abuse here. Uh, but, but it was really where he ended that, that interested me most. So this is, this is just from the end of Sam Rivieri's piece in defense of poetic plagiarism from LitHub recently. He says, I was born in the early 80s. I grew up with music and artworks collaged from other music and artworks. This is only going to become a more naturalized situation, especially to poets who compose using copy-paste keystrokes, search engines, AI software, and are accustomed to unfettered access to the storeroom of culture. Maybe one day there'll be no authors as we know them, only books, no poets, only poems, and literature will return to the anonymous commons where all creators are equally advantaged and equally obscure. But before that happens, it makes sense to question the direction we're headed in, we're heading in, whether we want to be participants in the kind of artistic culture that snatches at free-floating ideas in order to moor them on our own property. Okay, I'll I'll end there because the rest of it's not all that worthwhile. But but this 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 sort of um, vision that he he has of a possible future where there there are no poets, only poems, because we have we've stopped being so uptight about copyright. We've stopped being so uptight about plagiarism, and we just allowed ourselves to to mix and match and uh, borrow and steal and lend and donate and, uh, and, and compose the, the ongoing quilt of international world historic literature as, as it has always been composed. I think that's fine. I just think he, he actually gets it almost completely backwards here. Because as I said, I, I don't really know that people are especially uptight in the poetry world about borrowing and modifying and, and transforming. I think that that is pretty understood to be part of the game. Michael Robbins certainly loves nothing so much as as borrowing and transforming. Um, for, for that part, for that matter, Claudia Rankin quotes plenty of people, includes the, the artworks of other people in her in her book. But I think I think he actually gets it sort of backwards here. He says there'll be no poets, only poems. I, I think I think we will actually have no poems, only poets, at least if this uh, literature as content model, this personality-based model continues or expands. If we're really dealing with a, with a, a personality that curates various influences and composes a, produces a, a reliable voice, a reliable attitude, a reliable tendency, a reliable argument, a reliable gripe, that that's what we go back for, whether it's to a podcast or a book or to whatever the format is supposed to be. What we're really dealing with is content. And so what defines this is not an individual poem at all. That that shape of the individual poem, as Stephen Dunn might uh, think about it, I think is, is going to be less and less significant the more we uh, 
the more we 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 look to personalities to provide us with literary content to use a truly loathsome phrase i think that we will be in the exact opposite of the world that sam rivieri foresees uh, though i can't say i i can't say i i hope so i in fact i i hope that he's wrong i enjoyed michael robbins book i enjoyed citizen citizen was was a was a more bracing read but uh, but i enjoyed it good it's a good book they're both good books but for my money, I, I do hope that individual poems uh, survive. I hope they carry the day. I am far more interested in uh, Now Goeth Son Underwood than I am in whoever fucking wrote it, whose name we don't remember anyway. But with that, I've gone on for way too long. It is extremely late. I have a lot of editing to do tomorrow. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it. So thank you so much for listening. I am hoping this won't be insanely long. I'm hoping I will be, I'll be able to compress it a little bit. Uh, sorry for the shagginess. Remember, next week I'll be talking with Alice Allen of Poetry Says about the movie Patterson. So check that out if you have not yet. I think it is on Amazon. I think, that's, I think they paid for it. So that's uh, Patterson by Jim Jarmish. I'll be talking about that with Alice Allen. In the meantime, you can reach me as always at sleericketts at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs>